Greetings, ladies and metalchers, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Misconceptions Surrounding Human Nannies by Entangled Bottles. Human nannies were known throughout the galaxy as the best child-rearing service money could buy. The humans were also renowned among spaceship crews for bonding to anything, let alone the actual child of a sentient race. Many a space-born child has grown up with an Uncle Mickey, though the odds are evenly split between that this uncle spoiling them rotten, exposing them to vast unnecessary danger, such as teaching them to build minor improvised explosives or elastic-based firearms, or somehow both. And still those spaceship crews often speak warmly of these uncles and aunts and their willingness and ability to care for children on occasions when the parents were otherwise busy. No problem, however, arises when these two rumors mix, usually on worlds distant from human homeworld, Earth, where the local human population in a given settlement might number in a single digits. In particular, frontier worlds are vulnerable to this, which is, in particular, unfortunate, given the often loose legal framework in those areas. Rumors mix and twist until one is left and with the belief that one can merely place one's child in the custody of a local human and collected a few years later, when it has experienced as a renowned human child-rearing and is less of a burden. This never works out in the favor of the parent. A surprising number of humans, at least to us most familiar with them through hearsay, will simply refuse to care for the child in one way or another, and some will yet raise it, but poorly. Sometimes, though, and most noteworthy are those that do care for the child. Through my research, it has become extremely apparent that outside of the nanny caste, humans bonded to a child that they have raised are universally reluctant to return it. The degree to which this manifests varies, but particularly in the frontier worlds, one might return to collect one's offspring to find that the human left years ago, bringing the child with them. Even when this is not the case, collecting said offspring is rarely a simple affair, and the human turning to violence is not uncommon. Many choose to simply give up and surrender their child in the human's care permanently, and simply make a new one, and many of those ones that don't meet unfortunate ends. An example that gained local fame is a case in the Arison Cluster. The local Venera Queen, delighted at the good fortune of an apparent human nanny in her hold, decreed that the human raise her daughter and her heir. When she returned a decade later to collect said child, to finish those parts of their raising and education, one could not leave to others, especially as a queen. The human challenged her to a ritual combat over the custody of said child. The queen, legally unable to refuse, accepted, at the apparent surprise of the human. The human made several attempts to dissuade the queen and was thought to be now fearing in their own life. The coming fight, however, proved otherwise, and, for the first time, the Eurasian cluster is now ruled by a non-Venera region. The new Venera Queen appears to be pleased with the outcome, and has stated that she will continue to heed the advice of her father and regent once she reaches maturity. While one can only imagine the exact circumstances, it is evident that not only do humans form unexpectedly firm bonds, but are also unprecedentedly fierce in protecting these bonds. It is this author's hope that this small missive would dissuade the good people of the galaxy from making unfortunate decisions based on the rumors surrounding the humans. For those with a greater interest in the matters, my extended dissertation is available in the Borellian archives for a modest fee.
once in the Uresen Cluster. Sam stepped forward, putting himself between Felicity and her once mother. She wrapped a nervous tentacle around his waist, and even as he put himself between her and the Queen, he gave her a reassuring squeeze. No! I refuse! Feli Seretai Rerisitine is the one's daughter. Your services have been appreciated, but we will take over now. She is our daughter, and it is time she returned to her mother. With all due respect, Your Majesty, go to hell. You stopped being her mother the day you abandoned her with me. If you want her back over my dead body, I'll fight you on this every step of the way. Electrical chattering noises Sam recognized as comically literal shock filled the hall as he the crowd heard him. In his anger, he found himself enjoying the sound. Whether it was from his crude language or his decree, he did not know. But they could all go to hell along with their queen for all he cared. Sam did not favor these odds of winning a legal battle against the queen of all things, but there were actually laws for that sort of thing here. Hopefully, he could get a hold of a human embassy on Ilium. It was only ten light years away, so they might be able to offer legal advice. The queen stood still for several long seconds, before a slight crackle of energy danced across her flower crown, the Venera equivalent of blinking one's eyes to collect oneself. Very well, human. This one accepts your ill-fated challenge. We shall convene in the ancestral hall of mortal combat the day after tomorrow. Make peace with your gods, as I shall make peace with mine. Well, shit. Two days later. Sam held the ritual axe in his hands and trembled slightly. Could he really do this, to fight another living being to the death? He fled to this remote corner to avoid the draft for a reason. The Geralds had no concept of conscientious objectors. He saw his daughter sitting in the stands, her tentacles wrapped anxiously together. He gripped his axe tighter. He'd not let his daughter be raised by some heartless monster that threw her away for a decade, and then come to collect like a lost bag of luggage. Hours later, Sam sat on the throne, trying to relax his shoulders. As a quickly crafted metal flower crown was being lowered onto his head, Regent, until his daughter, now legally recognized as such, reached maturity in 15 years. He wondered briefly if there had been another way through this, or if you could somehow get out of it now. But one look over at Felicity dissuaded him of it. Her once mother had had her chance to back down, but that was one thing he could never have done. He did, however, wonder how in seven halls he was going to rule a goddamn planet. He glanced at Felicity again. The things one did for one's child. End of story. Story number two. Why are you all the way out here, human? Written by Vivid Membership 3959. Universe 9441. It was a normal day on my usual patrol duty. Even though the Soul Republics, the Republic of Centauri, are very positive, we still practice basic border control, which was determined to be halfway between our respective stars. My usual patrol was greeted by the occasional old broadcasts from Earth's entertainment stations. I'll admit that I've gotten my system to play some of them after spending some time to clean up the static. That was until today, where I saw a huge ship twice the size of my own ship piloted by a skeleton crew. Were the humans invading? They do have a very militaristic past from what they have told us. However, my belief in the simple acts of diplomacy still hold. The craft still has time to end its FTL and not enter our territorial space. Besides, 
Uh, no one really cares about the void. <laughs> this is Border Security Position 1101, and under the DCIL Treaty, your ship is impeaching on our space because of this. I demand for your craft to change its course out of FTL Path 21-88 back towards the nearest Earth port. I transmit the signal towards the ship and begin to move my craft out of the potential effect of any weapons that they could be carrying. The ship slowly stops from FTL so as to not rip itself apart. I wished that was the end of this confusion as the ships hail mine. The human as we know them is shown on a screen. Usually humans wore a blue clean uniform when the diplomatic missions. Though occasionally they'd be wearing other clothes due to the month-long travel time between our planets. Mainly because FTL is a new invention to the universe. But that's a story for another time. This human was wearing civilian attire and looked not of a diplomat. Oh, sorry for the scare, just, just trying to catch a special. The human says casually, like I would understand the adjective serving as a noun. A special what? I asked back to the human. Oh, oh you know, a special. A one-time release of a video for events. The human explained back in such a way that I'd assume that made me feel like a dumb one. From my understanding, human video is how I am capable of seeing you from my ship, and the way you are using it isn't making sense. Please elaborate more about why you are here, and please don't use colloquial words. Alright, alright. Uh, so on Earth, there, there was a series of stories with, with moving pictures and audio, and uh, we call those videos. One of my, my favorite stories uh, that use videos as a medium was released in one of their videos only once, and no copy can be found on the internet. The human continues to explain. So, uh, because radio waves uh, travel at the speed of light, and this craft can travel faster than light, I am going to go far enough away from Earth to watch it, the human says in a way that seems prideful. So, uh, uh, let me get this straight. You decided that a video was worth going on a ship violating our space area, is that correct? I say to the human's utter ludicrous plan. Uh, yep. Now, now if you let me pass, I still have 20 years to go back to catch up. Uh, that's not even to mention the amount of work I'll have to do to put the computer in order to remove the static. I try to speak up to cut off the human's talk, but the human just ends the communication and continues on their way, on their mission to watch a video or something. I'm not paid enough to deal with this. End of story. Gun to a sword fight. Written by, yep, that's my account, lol. Fleet Admiral Atung was the finest admiral there was in the Yewer Confederation. Charismatic, quick-witted, and a brilliant strategist. The only thing Atung wasn't great at was close-quarters combat. Not like he'd been much of any, operating a destroyer in the middle of a fleet of several hundred ships, which were now headed to a conflict zone between the Yewer and the Terran Commonwealth. Yeah, the conflict had been going on for a short while, Neither side has really made any major advancements, so the conflict over the planet of Pluto had been reduced to a war of attrition. Till now, Aktung was commanding the largest fleet of the Yewer, with all of their smaller feats combined into one giant mass of destruction. And in the middle of them all was the magnificent 12,000-foot VLR laser railgun TM. If it didn't destroy a large amount of the human fleet, then it would destroy Pluto, which is gonna end the conflict anyway. As the fleet traveled through the use of FTL, Octung was in the main conference room before being quickly called to the main bridge by the slightly panicked second-in-command of the fleet. As he came into the room and looked at the window, he saw... Nothing? 
Nothing seems to be wrong, Octong exclaimed. Humans were known to be sneaky SOBs, but they'd be getting peppered with shots if that were the case. That's the thing, sir. There's no fleet. Even when we checked everywhere for any radiation emissions, comms chatter or anything for that matter, even the human Pluto colony is silent. No lights or power detected. The only sign of human life is a mining vessel currently using gravity beams to drag some dug-up halls. There seems to be only two humans on it. There's no human military symbols on it either, responded the second-in-command. Hmm... Hail the mining vessel. Maybe the humans finally gave up the planet after realizing how much of a hassle defending it. Also, uh, try to appear non-threatening. Meal do, boss. Achtung pondered for a moment what this lack of Terran activity could mean. He relayed to his fleet to stay ready in case of any ambush the humans might think up, but to not fire any shots unless shot at or said to open fire. On the main screen of the room, a human's face lit up, dirty, disheveled, fitting an operator of a mining ship. The human didn't look too surprised at being hailed by hundreds of ships, though. So Octung felt a bit of respect to him, being calm in the face of overwhelming odds. Oh, you came way fucking earlier than I thought so. In any case, welcome to the ex-colony AV Pluto, sir, Mr. Admiral Achtung. It was clear that the accent on this human was heavier than in most cases. In any case, the course of action was the same. Welcome, human. This planet, seeing as it is, seems to have been abandoned, is now under the property of the Year World Confederation. It would be kind of you to vacate the space as soon as you are ready. We have to secure the planet in case any pirates would want to try their luck. Oh, gobshite! I wasn't done talking to you, buddy. The colony was evacuated, but not huge cowardice. Simply put, we were challenging you to your species trial by swords. Okay, Achtong was getting kind of tired of the accent. Either way, a trial by sword. An old tradition that was never abolished. Fortunately, Yewa was some of the greatest melee fighters there were. So that would mean success either way. Very well, we accept your challenge. When shall we meet up and fight? Right now. What? Achtung said, befuddled. Well, it seems you didn't bring a sword here. But considering axes are also used in your trials, I think that railgun counts, the humans said before their vessel started slowly approaching the planet. I don't understand. Aren't we supposed to? Achtung explained before the vessel shot out a gravity beam towards the planet, specifically a pointy tall building. God, Bulg, come here, the human shouted as the gravity beam started to rip out the building from the ground. No, wait. It was sliding out of the ground. There was no damage visible. It also seemed to extend far under the ground. It was a good several seconds before the full object came into view. Several dozen kilometers long, weighing tons upon tons, out came a steel greatsword of human design. It was quickly ascending towards the vessel before stopping in a blocking position in front of the Octong fleet. What? And guard, you fucking idiot! The vessel advanced to the fleet. Shoot! Achtung shouted at the bridge. A shot rang out from the laser railgun, vividly heard through the ship. The human vessel swung their sword. They parried the shot. A clean line of destruction traveled through the fleet, destroying dozens upon dozens of vessels. The vessel approached. None taste the repost! The sideways slash. As the sword traveled through the fleet, some tried evading by going up, backwards, or down. None of it worked. 
as it was seconds before hitting the main ship. Akhtong muttered only one sentence. Fucking Irish. End of story. Story number two. Humans of Cronenbergs, written by John Galt. Chloe sat up straight, shoulders back, her hands clasped together on her lap, with one knee over the other, in her little barred prison cell. Her clothes were shredded with bullet holes, scorch marks and little punctures from the shrapnel, but she was pristine. The floor vibrated gently as the loud kapshoom sounded somewhere in the ship. It was followed by another and another, the sound of long-range missiles being deployed. Her ride was here. She needed to get out of now or never. The lights winked over to Yenna, and her two guards looked to one another. Strange long-nosed wolf creatures with fur sticking out between armored plates and little tufts. They looked like space werewolves. Oh, she's not going anywhere. Let's go check, said one of the galactic standard. They had taken Chloe's translator and thought that gave them privacy in the conversation. Watch the human, snarled the other. He opened the bridge's door, giving Chloe a brief glance of dozens of crewmen running down the main corridor. There was another volley of kashooms rumbling through the ship as he lingered there. Chloe rose to her feet, sweeping her platinum blonde hair back. Human! Ah, uh, stir, 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 stop, stop, human! barked the guard in broken English. Chloe fidgeted with her fingers and darted her eyes toward the roof, flinching at every sound. It was her best nervous human impersonation she could do on such short notice. The, the battle might cause a breach. I need a respirator, respirator, uh, uh, oxygen, breathe, Chloe said, putting her hand to her mouth and breathing quickly through her fingers. The guard's eyes went wide and reached up to his own snout. Do, do, do we have emergency masks? He barked to the other. Roger, I'll get them, said the distracted guard number two. Chloe stood at the bars, holding them firm, fingers tightening until her knuckles turned white. The lights dimmed and the room suddenly hummed, the hairs on her arms prickling and standing on end with all static in the air. She felt like a fork in a microwave. Long-range razor fire had opened up. Hi. I'm scared, she said, while slipping a foot out between the bars. Human, remain, he started. He didn't get to finish. She lowered her hand and swung her lower body out between the bars, her shoulder and leg narrow waist slipping through until her legs wrapped around the creature's shoulder and neck. He pulled away, but she already had him tight. Something cracked in her chest, ribs popping in a rattling sound of carnage as she was tugged and forced out between the narrow bars. The gap was far too small for her head. The air exploded out of her lips when the butt of the gun was slammed against her waist. It clattered to the floor and a knife appeared in the creature's hand. Chloe grabbed the bars and forced her shoulders away. A sickening loud crack in her neck was all she heard. Fast flitting thoughts of panic, wordless fear raced through her mind. The world was black and she felt nothing, like her body had been flicked off like a light switch. Slowly, it came back the feeling of motion and clawed fingers scratching at her own body, a knife puncturing repeatedly through the meat. She attacked the strange sensation, but her hands slowed, torn clothes falling off of her body, and finally eyes opened. There were a long trail of web-like strands of flesh stretched between her and the open-mouthed human skull on the far side of the bars. She dropped the knife and swept a hand down her arm, the fur, Discarded flesh and cloth, all falling away in sheets from her pristine new skin. The ship hummed around her with more laser fire, 
shaking her from her stupor. Chloe's body was emaciated and thin, a skeleton of a former self constructed of what little viable biomatter had existed between the two corpses. She pulled away from the dry strands of decomposed skin, like pulling out a spiderweb. The air was hot and wet, her skin patched and discolored with alien blood that was quickly absorbing down through her pores. She stuck to the wall by the door, pressing herself flat against the cool mantle. Distracted guard number two raced back into the room to see the mess of twisted meat and dropped the two wolfman masks. Grex, he said. Chloe slunk down from the mantle, gangly thin arms wrapping around the wolf's back, her legs snapping up around his waist and pinning his arms against his sides. They tumbled together to the floor, her mouth filling with fur as she bit down on his neck. He thrashed and writhed in her arms, howling out. Thick black veins ran from her skin into the creature, diving into his armor and running up his face. Her body started to fill out, growing stronger and bulkier, her legs able to draw tighter around his lower half. His struggles were eased, his body shrinking down like a vacuum-sealed bag of bones. Chloe turned to the open doors where engineers stood, eyes wide and mouths agape, wrenches in their hands like makeshift clubs. Chloe grinned to herself as she peeled herself off the corpse at her feet. Please tell me you don't have any flamethrowers on the ship, she said as she ran towards the crowd, diving hands first into the mass of surprised crew. Her bones snapped but quickly reformed into new, longer limbs. She drove fingers into stomachs and her third and fifth hands grabbed at heads and faces. She lost track of her body and a sea of flesh writhing down the corridor. There was so much to focus on. A body struggling in a headlock, gunfire rattling away somewhere else, the pop of a grenade exploding eating away the substantial chunk of her somewhere. She wrenched the still-dissolving bodies along with her crashing like a wave into doors and spilling through the gaps. Sounds of fighting eased, the weapons drawing silent, an unfamiliar limb scooped up her old clothes and dragged them along, retreating with the rest of her down towards the cargo bay. The ship hung hot and silent, the air so thick with humidity that you could practically swim. It condensed on the walls in little droplets. The ship listed to the side slowly, tumbling, crewless. She sat, inspecting the back of her hand, flexing her fingers one at a time, remembering her old self. There was a loud rumble ahead of her, and the cargo bay door started to open. Chloe rose off the crate back in her old clothes, skin pristine, and back in her old human shape. The walls were a twisted portrait of teeth, fur, discarded flesh, and empty veins, all in large swirling spirals radiating away from her. Ship's clear. Can we make sure I'm not captured by a race that's not so fluffy next time? She called to a crew. Humans are Cronenbergs. End of story. Humans Don't Duck, written by John Galt. Zarnath sat squat, hands clinging to his rifle like a lifeline. He counted down slowly, 20 seconds. Glancing to his left and right, he could see the company largely agreed with the decision. They were all ducked down in cover, waiting, thinking about the dwindling supply of evacuation ships. Ten seconds. Five. He cringed and hoped that it wouldn't be him. Wham! A loud concussive blast rattled him and the crate. The dust settled in Station Mevian's eighth cargo bay, and Zarnath took the opportunity to quickly glance over the crate. It looked the same. 800 meters of poor cover, scorch marks, no visibility in the heavy smoke, 
and shot out lights. No talk soldiers advancing. His duty as watch completed, he ducked back down and started counting out the two minutes until the next long-range explosive hit. There were a few blind shots fired around corners, just enough that it looked like the soldiers were doing their jobs. When Zarna settled back down, he saw a figure walking towards him, standing tall without a care in the world. He carried a heavy lump of boxy metal with a long barrel ending in a knife. It had a thick belt running into a box hanging off the human's hip. He was in a dark grey camouflage, marked him as part of the Massivan's militia, but was walking like an oblivious civilian, and the bright red pointed hat he wore negated any benefit of the camouflage. As Arnath watched, a few laser shots cracked through the air as though demonstrating his point. Get down, shouted Zarnath. It's no use ducking. The bullets are already past you. Who is in command here? Former officer Zildar, uh, um, sir. Uh, former? Zarnath nodded over to his side, where a mound of smoldering grain lay. It had blowed out of a shipment their officer had been using for cover. The human clucked his tongue, looked out towards the talk lines and nodded. I think that's the bugger who took a shot at me, he said. Zarnath had lost count of when the next explosion would hit. But if the human could stand in broad view of the enemy, he could peek over the crate. He brought his binoculars and scanned the far wall past the landed broken husks of the failed defense fleet where the human had nodded. Sure enough, he saw a dull gray shape huddled down. Broken fighter, 12 o'clock, by the nose on the floor, 707 meters, the dull gray shape, called Zarnath into his radio without taking his eyes off the shape. The screen flashed white for a few moments clearing and adjusting its brightness to reveal a glowing buckled bulkhead and remnants of the fighter's nose cone. Yes, that was him. Good shot to your brother. Well, cheerio, he said, and started waltzing off towards the enemy at a leisurely stroll. Sir, uh, where are you going? Uh, the talks are over there. I'm not much use back here. Uh, there isn't any cover. The human stopped and considered that for a moment. We can make a run for it. Are your men up for a bit of a jog? Zarnath looked about his company to see all eyes on him and his odd conversation partner. They looked hopeful for the first time since they had entered the damned level. We'll all go at once, said Zarnath. A warm smile greeted him in return from the human before a whistle was lifted to his lips. It shrieked out as the only warning before the human started running. There was a loud concussion of the latest two-minute explosion. If there was a time to run, it was now. Zarnath rose and took after the officer, keeping his head low as he ran. There was a loud, shocking thunder belching from the human's gun, a repeated dak dak dak. He remembered the human words. There is no point ducking, the shots have already passed you, and rose to his full height, filling his lungs with air and keeping his eyes on the enemy's cover. Laser fire came their way, and he raised his rifle, echoing shots back at the little sparking muzzles flashing from the dark rifles. Soon his whole team was firing and running behind him, albeit a bit off in the distance. The human, however, had no such regard for his safety, charging alone towards the enemy at the front. The fire slowed, probably due to the unknown terrifying weapon in the human's hands. All Zarnath had to do was follow that red hat as it slowly faded into the thickening smoke. Whenever doubt crept in, he heard that weapon and knew safety lie on the other side, even as he lost sight of that hat, he could run towards the shots. The smoke, clear, illuminated by small fires, then he found the human slumped down against the crate by the enemy's now silent mortar. 
the knife extending from the human's weapon, dripping in dark blood from the corpses that lay around him. The human's clothes started to stain the same color as his hat. Uh, hello again, in a bit of a spot of bother. Uh, could you do me a favor? Zarnath knelt down, then flinched as the human fired off another burst from an automatic rifle that hung slack. He wasn't shooting at anything, just shooting for the sake of it. Zarnath opened his medical kit, unsure of what he had that was compatible with human anatomy. Your hat? Oh, yes, but uh, can you keep her firing? The men like it, said the human. Zarnath was held by the steady gaze. It was the first time that he had seen the human look serious. Zarnath nodded, his head dipping low so the shoulder strap could be passed over to him. They won't be able to evacuate the whole station. There is only one way to save those who will be left behind, said the human before slapping the red hat on Zarnath's head. End of story. Story number two. Wait, you've been recording this whole time. Written by Drifty241. Colonial Fleet 3, Daily Log, Leech Time 3. This is Admiral Chow aboard the Chexel-class cruiser Conviction. We found a habitable planet. Atmospheric readings are still coming through, but it's mostly nitrogen with oxygen, carbon dioxide and a small dash of argon, which is a bit unusual, but it won't affect us. As for the planet itself, it is the third planet away from its star, and has a large moon. It's made up of three landmasses, and it started with a shallow sea filled with the peninsulas and islands. We are assembling a party to go down and scout a mountainous peninsula. It's between two shallow seas, which are separated by a tiny strait. Colonial Fleet 3 Daily Log 2 We found uh, primitives. They are bipedal, which is rather rare in the galaxy and they are covered in small, wiry spikes which collect at the top of their skull. Their brain size is standard, so they're probably sapient. There is a center of civilization on this peninsula. We'll land and make contact. Colonial Fleet 3, Daily Log 3. And touchdown! The ride down was a bit bumpy, but nothing too serious. We spotted a city to the west and have sent some scouts that way. Colonial Fleet 3, Daily Log 4. We ran into some of these aliens. They're called Anthropos. Uh, there's not much else we've gathered from linguistics. But the settlement to the west is called Abydos. We're still heading that way. Colonial Three Fleet, Daily Log 5. We arrived at the river east of Abydos. There was a large battle going on, bigger than anything anyone in the galaxy had ever seen. The Anthropos were fighting, adorning helmets of iron and bronze and riding quadrupedal demons with feet of steel and muscly body. These creatures are clearly the spawn of the Dark Gods. One man stood out, smashing his enemy lines with a group of elites and routing them. More linguistics came through. He's called Alexander, and he's a king of Macedonia and all of the healers. Their weapons were strange too, rods of malleable material tipped with steel. We think it comes from a large plant that we keep finding, but uh, hey, we managed to catch the whole battle on camera via drone, so it should entertain the troops. Colonial Fleet 3, Daily Log 6. More scouts were sent out, and they brought back reports from the Houseborn, hailing from the north the giant muscly creatures with claws and massive jaws. To the south are giant demons, the large ears, spears of natural iron, and a thick armored hide. 
Then there's the agile creatures the Anthropos have tamed in smaller sizes. This planet is a curse. End of log. Four days later, Asilich Palace. Your Majesty, these Anthropos are dangerous. Admiral Teal was found within the stone sticking out of his head from a crude projectile weapon. If anyone makes landfall there, they will meet a quick end, said the advisor in a low voice. The Emperor boomed back. Very well. I declare an exclusion zone of 100 light years in every direction. Furthermore, I want probes with high magnification in orbit and a base on the planet's moon. In a scared voice, the advisor said, Why, my lord, should we risk any more lives? Look, I've seen that video of the battle on that river, and it's the most entertaining thing I've seen in a while, said the emperor. I'm going to televise their battles on my streaming service and make it available to every other civilization in the galaxy. Think of how good that'll be for the economy. 2,700 years later, Galactic Union Senate. It was diplomatic Charlie's turn to speak. Humanity has just been inducted into the wider galactic community. And with that, the spying from aliens had come to light. Wait, you're telling me you have historical footage from the Battle of Granicus River all the way to 2234 AD? That's invaluable knowledge for our archives. Uh, can you show us some of it? The aging emperor chuckled. Sure, this one's a fan favorite. Two alien commentators appeared on the screen, Von Oketa and Asilek Zeptos. They began talking. Welcome to the show, everyone. And would you look at that? Fan favorite Napoleon is at it again. He's fighting some Austrians, Prussians, and Russians at Austerlitz. Thoughts, Foder? Said Asilex. Napoleon is a real winner, but to cement himself as one of the greats with Alexander and Hannibal, he's going to have to win this battle, and it ain't gonna be easy. The odds are stacked against him. What followed was pure hysterical footage of the occupational quips from the commentators. Oh my god! And he's breaking the ice with his artillery! I wonder what the folks home are thinking right now! He's a true genius! I sure hope I get to see the end of his intelligence someday, said Vona. Well, I'm not sure about you, Vona, but I've still got another 600 years left, replied Asilex. As the battle reached its conclusion, Vona began speaking. Well, uh, the fighting is dying down now, but... But I just want to mention that this route is sponsored by Chesexel Games and their now hit mobile game Attack of the Elephants. It has multiple human weapons and you must defend yourself from the demons of their planets for as long as possible. Download now for free. Asilix spoke one more time. Well, that victory is definitely going to affect the betting economy. Charlie was stunned. The aliens had marketed millennia of human bloodshed and he couldn't help but laugh at the absurdity of it. End of story. How Humans Survived Their Hunters, written by Jimmy Agent 007. There was little presumed mystery about the humans. First contact was made, some simple trades and exchanges, and little else. The Yukali were wary, but not afraid. The humans were dangerous pack hunters, while the Yukali were herd animals. Yet the humans showed no hostility towards them, so they assumed that they simply civilized past their hunting instincts. That was until the Lyrics showed up. The few humans who had been on Ukali hadn't even been military, and yet fought with a ferocity that terrified both sides. The war that followed moved on and eventually ended in an unconditional surrender. What surprised the Ukali more than how the humans reacted to the attack was how they made peace after. A new state was created, one where the Lyrics could govern themselves, 
The humans, after, went back to their friendly, peaceful selves. After that, there was a significant influx of trade, tourism, and immigration. Everyone wanted human friends around, not just for protection, but because they always seemed up for anything that they might need. A human mechanic could fix a town's water supply before the herds could convene a meeting to invite another herd with a member of with the appropriate skills. That was what Sheriff Knight of Feng kept reminding himself while reading the immigration papers. The human moving into the three-herd town was a mechanic. He didn't even have any former occupations with the military. His new job title, another human thing that he was still getting used to. Typically, older herd members tended to do better independently and wandered a bit to solve problems between the herds. It was a position of authority that the humans named for him. They did like putting names and things. In an effort to distract himself, Knight of Feng got out of his pod and left the papers on the small desk. He landed on the outskirts and shivered at the sight of the old forest a hundred meters away. It was hardly safe, so he trotted out to the herd home. The humans started calling them bonds before their diplomatic authority stopped them, calling it offensive. Knight of Feng didn't think so when he looked up the word, but humans always seemed to go out of their way to avoid such things. Inside, he could see the family in distress. What appears to be the matter? Our herd has kin in the capital, across the forest, so we sent out a pod for a youngling to meet our cousins. The pod was returning. But it is not here, the mother replied. Knight of Feng shifted on his hooves uncomfortably. Could it have returned to the capital, gone in the wrong direction? No. Cousin Herd saw it fly over the forest towards us. Watch to leave, came the chilling response. A pod carrying a child goes missing in the forest. There was nothing that they could do. Nittais sat in a pod where she was told to sit. The door was open and she could only see trees around her where she had landed. She wondered why her herd wasn't there to meet her. Maybe they were late. She figured that she would need to wait a little while. The sheriff sat in his pod. He thought about flying it over the forest, but he wouldn't be able to see below him, and the tree covers would be too thick to find a landed pod. Even if he could, if the child had wandered in, he could go to the edge and call for her. That would at least be something. But deep into the forest would be impossible. Dangerous predators out there. Even a whole herd wouldn't live long if it wandered in, and even if it knew where to go. His eyes fell to the paper on the desk. Hunters were simply too dangerous for him. He imagined hundreds of humans roaming the forest in lieu of any notion of what actual predators were. A thought crept into his wizened mind. Humans in a forest. His screen beeped at him and startled his thoughts. His alarm for when the human arrived had triggered it. He tapped a quick message for the human to come to him. As he waited, he considered what he might say. Natice munched on the salad that her grandmothers had made for her. She felt bad for not sharing it, but she was hungry. It seemed to be taking her family a long time to come pick her up. The human was smaller than Knight of Feng, with fur on his head and face, yet compact with dangerous potential. Only the casual sway about his walk put him at ease. Howdy, Sheriff. Uh, something needs fixing already. The human gave a polite tip of his hat instead of a bone-crushing handshake. His friendly tone almost made one forget a human could be anything else. A child is missing, the sheriff blurted out. He noticed a shift in the human's posture instantly, where the casual tone was gone, and it felt like stone. Oh, we think that the pod has malfunctioned and landed in the forest, 
Netafeng waved at the trees behind him. Does it have a locator beacon or a remote control? The human asked, stern and concerned. No, he answered, suddenly realizing how useful that would be. Uh, nothing like that. The human pinched the bridge of his nose and groaned before continuing. Do you not have search and rescue team that can scan for the pod and go get them? Nobody goes into the forest, it's too dangerous. Even fighting herds stay away. Scanners are only on spaceships, aren't they? The human growled again as he pinched his nose. I need a name and a picture of the child. Knight of Feng brought the human into the barn and got one from the family. He used his device to capture the image and started working with it on their walk back. The human grabbed some things from his vehicle and started walking towards the forest. Stay here and let everyone know that this is the right spot, the human called out. Uh, what do you mean? he asked, but got no response as the human started running into the forest. Natice hopped off the seat and started to pace around the pod. Trees were everywhere, sounds were all around her. She sighed and continued to wait. The sheriff was still standing confused, well after the human disappeared into the forest. It wasn't until a noise behind him startled him and he turned around. It was a heavy human vehicle, a bus, they called it, with two levels. They drove around the popular cities to show off all the sights to the human tourists. When it stopped, he could read on the screen that it was supposed to be showing the coastline stone formations, and they were far off the map. Human families poured out of the vehicle in a frenzy of activity. Some were older, some much younger, a collection of small herds, it seemed. When one asked if they were in the right place for the missing child, Knight of Feng simply nodded, knowing humans understood the gesture. The screen on the outside of the bus was changed to a map of the local area. He could see a small dot inside the forest moving deeper while dots started appearing around him just outside. Humans began splitting off into groups of two, while the younger stayed behind. Older children were at the screen talking to the groups and spreading them out. Humans didn't even complain. They just acted. Natice was getting worried. Her salad was done and she was still had not seen her parents. She had set off in the morning and it was now well past midday. She had never been alone for so long before in her life. Night of Feng was dumbfounded at how many more human vehicles had shown up. The space was filling up where he was parked. Some human shuttles had even landed in direct violation of the air traffic control who had been screaming at them before the human screamed back. The air traffic control didn't talk anymore after that. The young humans were still busy directing teams into the forest, and the sheriff could see the pattern. An ever-expanding wave of humans simply marched into the forest. Some had weapons, but most did not. What really shocked him were the two humans with a pair of quadruped animals. They were covered in fur and followed the directions of the humans that they were with. At a distance, they were scary, but as they came closer, they were terrifying. One was a black and brown pattern of fur that seemed the most dangerous. The other had short yellow fur, and the way his tongue hung out lazily out the side of his mouth made him almost seem silly, if not for the visible teeth. Excuse me, but you wouldn't happen to have something with a girl's scent on it, would you? The humans asked. They smell better than we do, but they need to know what to look for. It was too late to back out now. The sheriff went into the herd and got some clothing that only she would have worn recently. The human seemed happy with that and went off into the forest. He wondered why the humans hadn't reported seeing any predators yet, but wondered if they would even recognize them as such with their domestic animals looked as they did. Humans continued to arrive, 
Even the human embassy showed up. Actual human soldiers were being briefed by the children and joined the search, with only the diplomat staying behind to talk to the media who had arrived. It was an odd sensation for Knight of Feng to see that as different as their two species were, they both had politicians who acted precisely alike. Natice turned the lights on in the pod as it got dark. She was hungry again, but didn't have any more salad. Her belly grumbled and she was getting tired. Her mind wandered to when her herd took her to the human market and let her try a juice box and was full of energy for days. It was forbidden shortly after by the herd. She had been rambunctious and had been made to see a doctor before he explained a common side effect of human foods containing tremendous energy. She wanted another juice box now. All the sounds in the forest suddenly stopped. It was night. Humans were still arriving. Food was being flown out on drones to humans on search. Landing lights were set up in impromptu landing sites. Even an asteroid prospecting rig had landed, undoubtedly forfeiting whatever shares they would have been collecting. A ship that would have had to travel from the entirely different orbit had shown up. Knight of Fang had wondered what kind of animals humans considered predators and did some searching. He regretted it instantly. Bears, tigers, lions... It was staggering to think of anything evolving to compete with them. Lesser to those were the wolves, and the humans turned them into dogs they brought with them. Trying to comprehend how humans survived, he looked around. This, this was how they did it. A single human could be dangerous, but many together are unstoppable. It didn't matter if they were in herds or packs. Few humans around him shared any familiarity with another. Yet they all came for a child not their own, like these people were when they were attacked. A threat to one was a threat to all, and they all threw themselves at the threat. A missing child warranted the same response. A rallying cry for help, all of it to hunt down a single child and damn the expense. Natais could hear things in the forest around her. She moved away from the pod. The light made her visible. She had to hide. She was too small to reach the door to close it herself. Into the bushes, she crept as forms appeared through the trees. Lanky, furless forms hopping along into the light. Their long snouts sniffing at the pod, slowly drawing towards her. There were several more around the pod. She froze, trying to go unnoticed. But they had a scent. Short hops towards her as they searched with the tiny eyes. Dead mouths opened and the hard sides of the mouths were bladed edges that chopped the, the air to taste her smell. Natice let out a soft whimper. She really wanted to try juice box again. The noise attracted the whole pack, and they all hopped closer. Natice wished they hadn't heard her. The rumbling of an approaching storm came from behind her and made her hope that it might hide her. Closer, the danger approached. Natice tried to look away, thinking the storm sounded too odd as if it had to pause for a breath between each rumble. One eye on the danger, and the other faced the bushes. She was about to shut them both, as the danger was only at arm's length away. But she saw something in the bushes, a glint of light from the plod of some metal reflecting it. As the danger leaned closer, the storm pushed through the bushes, and revealed that it was another animal. It didn't look like a predator. It was covered in black and brown fur, and the sides of its mouth were soft and pulled back to reveal a long row of sharp bone teeth. The metal that she had seen hung from the strap around its neck. Natice didn't know what the human letters Mary meant, but she recognized the shapes. 
The danger hopped in for the kill, and the storm exploded from the bushes. Matisse turned to see the storm beast with his mouth around the neck of the danger, whipping it back and forth until letting it go and sending the limp form flying to crash against the pod. The others hopped in to get at the storm beast, but it moved faster than they could, getting around them, biting into them, and throwing them around. When one hopped closer to her, the bushes exploded again and another beast came between her and the danger. The swan let out a thunder rumble, but kept close to Natice. He was pushing against her to shield her, a storm between her and danger. The yelps and cries of the danger amidst the rumbling storm ended as the danger fled. The one storm stood guard as the other turned to face her. This one had a tag on it that said Pippin on it. It licked her face and his whole body wiggled as his big tail moved behind him. Matthias couldn't tell if the storm was moving the tail or if the tail was moving the storm. The other storm suddenly let out a long howl into the sky. Human voices came back, shouting, as the storm started making shorter shouting noises. Matthias, a human shouted as he burst through the bush. Are you all right? He paused to look at the carnage around him. Matthias giggled as she got more licks from her face. Uh. I'm alright. The human grabbed the animal near her by the face. Good boy. Who's a fool of a tooker? Good boy. The other human was doing something similar before reaching into his bag. Do you need anything? The human near her asked. The tice perked up with excitement. Do, do, do you have a, a juice box? The other human fired something into the air and started working on his device. Then one near him replied, Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. The howling had been chilling, heard by everyone who stopped in silence. A hundred more humans getting ready to head into the forest were still at the sound. A bright green light went it up into the sky. Sheriff Knight of Fang didn't know what it meant. Found alive, a child at the tour bus screen shouted, showing the image sent by the human in the forest wrapping the young Natice in a blanket as she drank something clutched in her hands. There was half a moment of silence before a cacophony of noise. Every human around him and in the forest started screaming and cheering. They bellowed and hollered as the words they needed to express their feelings didn't exist and compensated with noise. Some tore off their shirts, others started to dance, and a few were on their devices calling out to the others en route that their mission was a success. That intensity of the emotion was almost unbearable for the sheriff. Almost. The humans were showing Knight of Feng what he had to do. He climbed onto his pod, tossed the immigration papers that he had been so worried about that morning into the air, and shouted, Humanity! Feck yeah! The crowd somehow managed to get more noisy after that. It fed off itself. It didn't stop until the girl came out of the forest. She was riding on a yellow quadruped, whose trot could only be understood as happy. The silly tongue hanging out of its head the girl was given over to her herd, who rejoiced her return. The animals were rewarded with food and attention, as the humans explained what had happened. Slowly, the humans started to leave. Ships launched, vehicles drove away, politicians took credit, and all soon left, except for the sheriff and the humans truck next to his pod. He was exhausted, but Knight of Fang sat in his pod to wait for the human. It was light out when he woke up to the soft touch of the human beside him. You're back, he remarked. Yeah, got through to the other side, so I hitched a ride. He pointed to a departing pod. Good news all around, I hear. 
Sorry, you weren't the one to find her. The human shrugged. As long as she was found, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry I missed the party, though. I liked this part. Sheriff Titefang watched the newsfeed of him. He was too stunned to know how he should feel about it. Until he did, he smiled. They both watched him getting onto his pod, tossing the papers into the air, and shouting for all the universe to hear. Humanity! Feck yeah! End of story. The Truly Strong, written by Rebel Hero. We had never been to war with the humans before. We had heard the stories from other races who had faced them in combat. They had remarked upon their outlandish strategies and their fierce resistance. Every race that fought the humans, win or lose, considered them a more than worthy opponent. Every race that fought the humans came away respecting them. When the time came for us that war was to be declared on the humans, what took us by surprise the most was how hard they tried to avoid going to war with us. We knew that they were not afraid of us. Their avoidance of a fight seemed to come from a position of strength, not cowardice. Perhaps, we thought, they had been weakened by another recent conflict. We should have heeded our own ancient problem. The truly strong do not seek to prove their strength, only to share it, as the saying goes. But the humans committed an error that demanded war. No matter how much they tried to talk us out of it, no matter what bargains they brought, they landed vehicles of war on one of our planets. This constituted an invasion by our laws, and their repeated refusal to answer our call to war insulted our honor. The laws and demands of honor were clear. When it became clear to the humans that we would not back down, their tones changed. Instead of trying to weasel out of their insult upon our honor, they requested a war council. They requested a presence of political leaders and military leaders alike on neutral territory. Our advising species, allies, and trading partners all strongly recommended that we accept and attend. They warned us to take it seriously. At the War Council, the humans outlined the conditions for waging war upon them. In the age of planet-cracking missiles, life-destroying bioweapons, and star-collapsing bombs, rules of war seemed outrageous. All of these superweapons were prohibited from use in a war with the humans. We thought they were joking, that they had lured us here to waste our time and prepare their invasion. We soon found that they were not, as they layered more and more rules upon us. We would have been outraged if we had not been so stunned. Restrictions on weapons, ship class, what can and cannot be targeted, the establishment of no-conflict lanes for civilians to flee from combat, the treatment of enemy combatants and prisoners of war, ceasefire periods to collect the wounded and dead from the battlefield. With so many rules, it seemed to us the humans treated war like a sporting event instead of battle. Our representatives were not pleased. You treat this as if it is a game. Where is your honor? Where is your desire for battle or victory? They had demanded, throwing a hefty stack of papers across the room in a fit of anger. The human representative simply looked tired at the time, yet mistaking it for boredom which further enraged us. It is a game, a game played by honorless children. There is no honor in war. War itself is a lack of honor. Honor is everything that precedes a war and everything that follows it. There is only one honorable way to wage war, and that 
Mr. Neville waited at all. The human military representative spat back at us. There was a fire in his features. We were too insulted to notice then. But that fire was hatred. The humans hated us for forcing them to war. These rules are our attempt to bring a scrap of honor to war, to lessen the burden of those who would suffer. Those who had never had a chance, never had a say in whether or not war was waged. So, do the honorable thing and sign the agreement, or prepare for total war. Those last words were a whisper, a quiet threat that had every other species in the room suddenly on edge. Thank the Supreme God that we noticed it. Our representatives were quiet for a long moment. Our war leader spoke up first, slowly and quietly. What happens if this total war is what we wish? What happens when it is our desire to fight a worthy opponent at full strength, to clash on a battlefield with nothing held back? The human sighed and rubbed the side of his face, as if he was a tired father trying to explain a simple fact to a young child. Then we all lose. Hundreds of billions will die. And for what? Pride, honor, land, any number of things that could be sorted out at a meeting, or over a beer and, or, and a fistfight. Crippled economies, entire planets lost, food, energy, resources, all scarce. Who picks up the pieces after that? A war like that doesn't end with a ceasefire. The battle continues on every street, in every home of all the survivors. The war ends! But the suffering continues for years, decades. Please, just sign the agreement and let's leave the fighting to the soldiers who signed up for it. Let's leave the citizenry out of it. If we must fight, let us fight and be done with it. The room buzzed with nervous energy. We were no strangers to war. We had battled our way to the empire we held. But the human's plea forced us to remember an aspect of war that we all wished to ignore. The aftermath. The drop after the high of battle fades. We didn't know why the humans cared so much for the lives of people, so much though. Did the citizens not live to serve the Empire? At the demands of our allies though, many of which threatened to withdraw support if we refused to sign, we signed the agreement and war was officially declared. Two years we were utterly defeated in two years. In the opening days of the war, we hit the humans hard. We overran their defenses with sheer might. We threw them from our space and pushed them back to their borders. We kept momentum slamming against their lines and chasing close behind them as they fled. Even with all their annoying restrictions, we outmatched them easily. Through system after system, we chased them as they fled, stopping only in vain attempts to slow our advance. Then, at one system, they dug in and our advance abruptly halted. It was like crashing into a cliffside in a wooden boat. We rose to the challenge, though. We were proud warriors. We relished the challenge. We hammered them endlessly. We knew how to prepare for a siege. We were ready. Supplies, ammo, reserves, we brought it all with us. But the humans did not give an inch. For a whole year, they held us at the border. Then, reports from home began to flood in, several months out of date. While we were engaging with the humans here, at the border, they had sent other fleets out behind us. They had destroyed many of our shipyards and factories. Our farm worlds were blockaded and financial centers were bombed. The first thing they had attacked, though, was our communications network. 
We had chased them right into a trap. They used our desire to humiliate them for questioning our honor against us. Our defense fleets were putting up a good fight, but anywhere they set up to defend, the humans had just attacked another target at the other end of our empire. With our communications crippled, we had no idea when and where they would show up. Sneaky, cowardly tactics, we had thought it at the time. The humans continued to disappoint us. We were told that they were amongst the best fighters in the galaxy, adept and efficient in warfare, an invaluable ally and a troublesome foe. We had misunderstood what they meant. Humans weren't efficient in fighting a war, they were efficient at ending a war. A few months after the initial reports of the humans attacking across our empire, away from the front lines, we received reports of our worlds falling into open rebellion. There hadn't been an open rebellion in our empire in centuries. There were always dissidents, but actually full-on rebellion. Those were the reports that finally made us realize how unprepared we were for human warfare. At that time, we had only seen war as a series of battles and supply lines, fight enemy, conquer battlefield, capture or destroy objective, then move on. That was all we had needed to consider, as up to that point we had fought wars in a linear fashion. An empire as large as ours had military just as large. We had money and resources to field hundreds of millions of fighting troops with acceptable weapons and armor and ships. The humans took all of our military doctrine and threw it back in our face. They cared nothing for honor and glory in combat like every other civilized race. Their tactics were base and cowardly, but effective. Very effective. We didn't adapt in time. We couldn't adapt in time. Thus, with our worlds falling to rebellion, our economy crippled, our supplies cut off, we were forced into our only unconditional surrender in the history of our empire. Humanity had made it clear that nothing else would suffice. When we entered the hall to sign our surrender and accept the humans' terms, we hung our heads, unable to meet the piercing stares of the humans. We'd expected smugness on their features. We expected them to gloat and belittle us. As usual, we were wrong. Their faces were a mix of fury and pity. When we signed the documents, we didn't even bother to read the conditions. We had simply assumed that it was the end of our empire, the end of our freedom. And as usual, we were so very wrong. Are you happy now? The human military leader stood as the convention came to an end. Tens of thousands of lives lost, trillions in damages, half a dozen of your worlds are in open rebellion, increasing the casualty numbers every day. All because you couldn't accept an apology. The other humans in the area tried to move him back away, hold him back, but he threw them off. I am sick of having to go to war with one backwards ass species after another in order to show you that there is so much more to the universe than conquest. Many of the attending species lowered their heads while the human raged. I realized that those were the species that the humans had bested previously. They were the ones that begged us to accept the terms of human warfare. It was then, for me, that all the pieces fell into place. Nearly all of the attending species were major economic trading partners with the humans. Each of them had large militaristic empires in the past, just like ours. Unlike us, however, their history prominently featured some kind of disaster which fractured their empire and nearly resulted in their extinction. Were the humans responsible? Was that why they were so adamant on us signing their agreements? I am not sure if any of the others had the revelation that I had 
as we left the convention in shame. We returned to our empire in shambles. Our forces tried to hold together what we could, and we all but abandoned the worlds that rebelled. To say that this defeat was crushing would be an understatement. We had based our entire culture on pride and honor, on our aggressive expansion and military might. In just two short years, one single short war, and it all came crashing down on us. This demoralizing defeat crippled our leadership, as the strong of our society blamed them for our losses, and the weak banded together and attempted to overthrow us. It fell to those of us who kept our heads to try and run the empire, a nearly impossible task given that the knowledge of how to run an empire sat firmly in the hands of the powerful old blood clans, who, I must reiterate, were so demoralized by the sloths that they became useless lumps. When the human warp signatures appeared over our home planet, we believed it to be the end. Tens of thousands of ships, most of them larger than anything we have ever seen before, hovering in orbit. Thousands more spilling out the larger vessels, this is Fleet Admiral Kane of the Allied System Restoration Fleet. I hope you aren't too late. Reports from your system are, uh, grim to say the least. This was the hail we received. No threats, no gloating, just a man with a concern in his voice. I was the one managing the system communications that day. My response was a dumbfounded one. You, you aren't here to destroy us, uh, enslave us. Through that hail, I heard a brief sound of someone cheering followed by a harsh admonishment. <laughs> they never read the terms. Kane had chuckled under his breath, though loud enough for me to hear. No, we come bearing aid, food, doctors, crisis management team, peacekeepers, construction equipment, and material. We even managed to snag a few asteroids full of raw materials and precious metals from neutral space, though, uh, uh mostly because I bet the engineering team they couldn't grab one as we passed it in sublight engines. None of us could believe what we heard, though none of us would have been surprised at this point. Everything we assumed about the humans was consistently wrong. A defeated empire is dangerous if left unattended. We learned that lesson back on Earth almost a thousand years ago. So in the interest of furthering peace, we shall turn a defeated enemy into an ally. We will help you jumpstart your economy, repair your worlds, and bring peaceful ends to the rebellions. We will also work on re-establishing your government, though this time under a little guidance. You, well, you would help us after defeating us in war? If it isn't just us. Our crews are made up of a few dozen allied species. Though the ships are human make and design, we may have built this fleet, but we couldn't crew it alone. And after this is all done... Some of your race will probably join us in rebuilding the next hapless empire to get wrecked. Besides, the conflict is over. You aren't our enemies anymore. Their ships were hundreds of times larger than our largest. If they could spare these resources to both build ships and large and aid former enemies at the same time, what do their vessels of war, the ones they held back, look like? It was a chilling thought. With all of our belief in our superior might, with everything we built and achieved, they could have swept it all away with the press of a button. We were nothing to them, insects biting at the heels of giants. Oh, come on, even if that was true, which it isn't, by the way. Your people, just like everyone else, even if it were true, and you were insects to us, insects still have their place in an ecosystem. Their presence is required for the health of the entire system. 
It's all just a matter of perspective. Just because someone is smaller or weaker doesn't mean that they deserve to be annihilated. Kane laughed over the hill. Apparently, I voiced my thoughts out loud. Oops. And... And what is this help going to cost us? I attempted to recover myself. Cost you? You've already paid the price. A crippled military, economy, and government. Not to mention the cost of lives. No. No, the price has already been paid. Kane responded. But my mind still reeled. None of this made sense. Obviously, every species out there had a different philosophy, different ways of living. This, though... This was too far out there. Why? I asked quietly. I heard Cain groan and take a deep breath. What do you want me to say, huh? His tone then took on a mocking flair. Because it's the job of the strong to protect the weak. Is that what you wanted to hear? No, man. His professionalism crumbled under the weight of his exasperation. I could hear him take a few breaths to regain his composure before continuing. We do this because it's the right thing to do. Your people are suffering. We have the means to aid you. So we are going to aid you. It would be cruel not to. It doesn't matter that we are former enemies. We weren't enemies before the war and now we aren't together. We are helping you because we can, because it is right. Now, will you accept our aid or will you turn us away? It was here that something tickled in the back of my mind. A saying from ancient days, always taken out of context without the full sentence. The truly strong do not seek to prove their strength. That was the saying we repeated to the youngsters as a platitude. A warning about pride, an admonishment to prevent them from making fools of themselves and starting needless fights. But somewhere tucked away in the back of my mind was the rest of the saying that we as a people had forgotten, or perhaps ignored. The truly strong do not seek to prove their strength, only to share it. Our reliance on systems of pride and honor led us to this point. Our narrow view of strength had led us to be humbled in the most devastating way possible. By our customs, to accept this help would make us weak, undeserving of life. I looked around at the people in the room with me. Most of them were barely hanging on. Despair had taken so many and was threatening to spread through the rest of us. No one else had a clear enough head to make this decision. Help us! Please, I asked quietly, ashamed. We would be happy to, was the only response. End of story. Send in the humans, I guess. Written by Real Nectarine 7986. It has been nearly 500 years since the war between the Hitak Systems Alliance and the Nakati Imperium began. 500 years of bloody back and forth over the frontier systems now rendered nearly inhabitable due to constant warfare. Nobody remembers how or even why it started. Popular theories range from either side simply wanting to expand their respective territory to threats and assassination attempts on the other's leadership. Any record of that time was lost during the opening stages when both sides attacked the other with computer viruses to disable their respective economy. It didn't work. The Alliance and the Imperium were technologically nearly on the same level, and when one developed a new technology, it was not long before it was either stolen by the other side, or it was captured in a battle and reverse-engineered. It had gotten to the point where the level of technology on both sides was so high that scientists and inventors were struggling to improve on anything. Alliance Council Meeting Are you insane? 
The Zosan council member shouted at the Sithenian council member. They will be slaughtered like vermin. I have to agree with my fellow council member there. Another council member from the Naban stated, The human fleet, large as it is, is far too technologically inferior to anything that we or the enemy have at our disposal. Would you all shut up already and listen to the rest of the information? The human council member, a formal general, called out. Humans. They were the most recent species to join the Alliance, only having joined some 40 years prior. Though the only reason they joined the Alliance and not the Imperium or any other faction was that the Alliance was the only faction that did not have a system of forced slavery in motion. The system of slavery that the Alliance has in place is purely one where the enslaved is working off their debts to someone else. And once the debt is paid, the slave is freed and has legitimate work experience on their CV, as the humans call it. In addition to prevent any extreme exploitation and appalling treatment, the slaves are closely monitored by the Council Ancients. Humanity, at that point, had only begun to colonize its neighboring star system. With the help of the Alliance, their technology made leaps and bounds, though they were not at a level where the Alliance thought that they would be useful in war. Mainly because humans seemed to detest the idea of solely relying on energy and plasma-based weapons across all of their armed forces. Though their shielding tech is considerable and their hyperdrives are in some ways superior to FTL drives the Alliance uses. Not necessarily faster, but easier to produce and maintain. For goodness sake, they still use kinetic projectile weapons which were phased out millennia ago due to modern armor being able to withstand those ordinances. Sure, it worked, but why stick to something so primitive when something better and more effective exists? The Sithenian council member nodded to his colleague in gratitude the human's rough attitude allowing him to continue talking. The humans have a saying, take a step back and look at the big picture. It pains me to say it, but my recent meeting with the human government has brought to light several factors that none of us have known about or even considered. He took a deep breath. The humans have a long-standing history of martial prowess. They are new to the galactic stage and, and thus have a different perspective than what is standard amongst the galactic communities. In the last 10 years, they have analyzed every battle, every tactic used, and every strategy employed by both our forces and that of the Imperium that we have on record. They have come up with hundreds of different strategies that we have never even thought of in the last month alone. Their combat doctrine differs greatly from our own. He looked around the Great Hall, looking at the dozens of individuals staring right back. Remember that one time we invited the humans to a war game? How one single human division managed to hold off against four of our divisions, despite the disparity in technology. How they held the line whilst their allies fled the field. Several council members either flinched or grimaced at the reminder. It had been a slaughter. Oh, those guys were fresh trainees, uh, not veteran stock, the human commented. If our fresh trainees are capable of doing all that. What's stopping you all from accepting the Sithenian council member's proposal? Why not let us prove our mettle? The man lit his cigarette. Unless you don't want us to show you how inadequate your military really is. Even if we call on you now, it'll take months or even years until... Another council member began. Three weeks, the human interrupted him, stunning everyone, even the Sithenian council member. In three weeks, we'll have a fleet ready for departure. That fast enough for you all? Numbly, the council member sat down. Good! I gotta make a call. See you all in a bit, the human said, extinguishing his cigarette on his boot 
and left towards the communication center. All right, who is going to support the humans? The Zothan council member asked. The human was so insane that it was contagious. Three weeks. That was absolutely insane. Two years later, humanity's entry into the war wrought a storm all across the galaxy. Why wouldn't it? It took the humans around two months to breach the defenses on one of the most heavily defended cities on one of the frontier planets. Another month for them to capture its spaceport, and then another two weeks to sort through all of the soldiers who gave up after their lifeline was severed. All the while, the human fleets fought for dominance, and it became clear why that human council member was so insane. No, sure of the odds. Firstly, the humans deployed a total of 100 Army and Marine Corps divisions, each containing at least 15,000 to 20,000 combat personnel, not including support, staff, armor, artillery, air force, logistics, etc. Secondly, the human fleet did not fire from a distance. Even they admit that their long-range capabilities are a tad lacking. Instead, they are insane enough to use their hyperdrives to land their ships right in between the Imperium's warships and proceed to deliver literal hell upon the Imperial Navy. Thirdly, what no one other than the humans and maybe a few other young species realized was that over the centuries following the abandonment of kinetic weapons in favor of energy-based ones, the armor that had at one point been impervious to any sort of small kinetic fire had slowly been replaced by armor specifically designed for energy weapons. Of course, the current line of armor was resistance to kinetics, but that was because of the fragmentation from artillery explosions. The same problem also befell the ships in the galaxy's navies, metal giving way to energy-resistant ceramic composites that turned out to be rather brittle to the mass-accelerated cannon rounds the humans employed for their secondary armaments on anything bigger than a light cruiser. Both, the humans are truly insane. On several occasions, their units have been surrounded by Imperial forces. Standard procedure dictated that they ought to surrender. Try telling that to a human, especially one from Ireland who just had his whiskey flask shot out of his hand. That particular battle was at most a pyrrhic victory for the Imperium. In the last two years, the former frontier systems had become silent. If one were to ignore the terraforming vessels approaching and leaving the systems, that is. The irony. The Imperium and the Alliance had invested so much energy and resources into those frontier systems that every one of their worlds except for the numerous homos had little to nothing in the way of defensive installation. Which leads to the last little detail the humans made known. Because whilst the galaxy was distracted by the fireworks, as the humans called it, Small, nimble human flotillas began raiding systems deep within Imperium space, even momentarily appearing above the Imperium capital, destroying an orbital shipyard, then disappearing. Now, the Imperium and the Alliance met to discuss terms, with the former desperately trying to ban the humans' use of their kinetic weapons. The human representative just laughed before stating, Hey, our guns work just fine. It's you guys that have forgotten how effective they can be. Why change something that works, after all? End of story. Story number two. Gentle Repose, written by Coyote Havoc. Ezreal jerked awake at the sound of his name, looking for who had called him, mentally preparing an excuse for having fallen asleep on duty. He expected a commander or a sergeant ready to beat the snot out of him. Snow coated the trench, abandoned except for one unharmed human figure. 
His mind went into overdrive as he groped blindly for his weapon. There is no need for that anymore, the human said. Ezreal stopped abruptly, asking, How do you know my name? The human smiled sadly and sat against the trench wall. It looked up at the sky for a moment and then dug into its pockets, retrieving a cigarette and a lighter. This is going to be difficult to understand, it said before igniting the cigarette. Turn around. Ezreal turned to look behind himself and found his own still form laying in the trench covered with the thin coating of snow. A dream? Ezreal asked rhetorically. Yes and no, the human replied, exhaling a long stream of smoke. Your line charged about seven hours ago. I already collected all of them. You, the harvester of souls, Ezreal said with a chuckle. The harvester is a vacal. The human let out another long exhalation of smoke and said, Humans have a similar belief. The Grim Reaper, as we call it. The problem is neither of our species has killed anything but our own until now. Ezreal considered what the human had said. It was Vakal belief that fallen warriors were sent to retrieve those who were slain and escorted them to the afterlife. Why not one of my comrades then? Ezreal asked. I don't make the rules, the human began. But it turns out the one who kills has to retrieve you as well. One human killed my entire regiment, Ezreal asked in shock. I was manning a pulse laser, the human replied. Then how are you dead? Ezreal challenged me. I'm not yet, the human answered. My unit is doing everything they can to save me right now. If you're not dead, then why are you here? Ezreal asked. The human smiled a little. I'm not going to make it, but you have a choice. Unlike me, you have until my cigarette is finished to wake up before you freeze to death. Then what happens to you? Ezreal questioned. I already collected all of your compatriots, the human said sadly. So I have to stay here until someone comes for me. <laughs> How long? Ezreal asked. Uh, as long as it takes, the human replied. You have a chance. Wake up, and you will live. Oh, all I have to do is wake up, Ezreal asked in disbelief. Simple as that, the human said, putting out the cigarette. You have to choose now, however. Time's almost up. Ezreal looked back over its snow-covered body. And you have to wait uh, until somebody comes for you, he asked. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about me, though. You need to choose now, the human said. I... I don't want to be alone, Ezreal said finally. Brian? Brian woke up to a vacal standing over him. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're dead, Ezreal said. I've come to get you. Why? Brian asked. You took a round to the head, Ezreal replied. So you came to get me, Brian asked. I didn't want to be alone, Ezreal said. I figured that we could go together. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azrakal. Thank you very much.